pressing issue is in the American society and perhaps even American evangelicalism, I wonder what you would say. Maybe it's the fact that many have been given over to various political ideologies, or maybe it's that we have become a new kind of addicted to our smartphones as a new appendage. Or maybe it's our overindulgence in media or food or entertainment. Uh, there are many, many ills to choose from, but I suppose that each of those are symptoms of a larger, much more unrecognizable issue that is both inside and outside of the church. And it is the God of individualism. Those of us in the West operate out of this mindset. The world is your oyster. You ever heard that? The saying that implies that everything is at your disposal if you so want it. But here's the truth. The world is not, in fact, your oyster. Uh, the world is a wide ocean. It's very dark. There are a whole bunch of oysters in it, one of which is yours, and many of which belong to other people. There are a lot of creatures out there that want to eat you. Um, there are billions of other oysters out there who will never know your name. Sure, there are opportunities in the ocean, but there are also massive amounts of danger, inevitable difficulty. Uh, one thing is for certain, the world is not your oyster. You are an oyster in the world. So how might you know if you adhere to the God of individualism? Well, here are a few markers. You might struggle with individualism if you think that history mainly falls on a few notable names of a few great men or women who have, quote, changed the course of history. You might struggle with individualism if you think you are in sole control of your destiny, where your decisions and your work ethic and your choices solely and only define what happens in your life. Or you might struggle with individuals of a church. You first and foremost think about how your needs can be met. Or you primarily and only think about how you, your skills and your giftings are going to change the course of the church. And you might struggle with individualism if you think it is embarrassing or shameful, uh, or you are hesitant to depend on someone else or ask someone else for help. And you might struggle with it if you are more apt to think about how you are different from everyone else instead of how you are similar to everyone else. And you might struggle with it if you have a constant category in your head of my rights, my property, my money, my body. Namely, if you think about everything in terms of mine, you might struggle with individualism. The concept of living in an individualistic society is not inherently moral, but it is just not the way most societies in the world have operated. In fact, besides the West in the 21st century, I would argue no real societies have operated like ours, and certainly not the societies represented in the scripture. Societies in scripture are known for their collectivist nature. In fact, most societies around the world today still operate this way. We in the West are the strange ones. 
So we are talking through what we call formation here. And one of our four identity pillars is that we are formed uh, as children of God. We are formed by prayer. We are formed by the scriptures and we are formed by one another. So what does the way of Jesus have to say about the so-called community that we are now a part of? Well, a lot, but before we get into exactly how we navigate relationships, we have to reorient ourselves to what Jesus says about community in his time and place. Now, sociologists call what we live in a weak group society, or what we call an individualistic society. And Jesus, however, lived in a strong group society, or what we call a collectivist society. So if we look back at what James just read, uh, we can see that there is a emphasis on the question Jesus gets asked, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, in the modern West, we are wired in thinking that our greatest devotion to our greatest devotion is to one's spouse. And that is a fine way of thinking if you are married. In many ways, the great metaphor of the Bible is one of marriage between Jesus and the church. So marriage is a very fitting metaphor. But in ancient Near Eastern culture, marriage was not the highest relationship. In fact, you typically did not marry because you had some grand romantic affinity for someone else. You typically married because you wanted to strengthen the larger extended family and you'd work to build alliances with other clans because marriages produced offspring and offspring meant more opportunity to have land and cattle and crops. Now, bear with me for a second because I'm about to get a little technical, but it has significant ramifications for our discipleship to Jesus. Now, in the world of the New Testament, an individual viewed their family members as those who would share in the what is called patrilineal line, meaning only males pass family membership down to the next generation. Females did not. So, for example, I have a sister. In ancient Near Eastern time, the family line would go through me, not her. She would be a part of the family or a kinship group of mine, but if she were to marry and have children, they would not be a part of our kinship group. And this is not a moral claim of any kind, but just the way in which Mediterranean culture operated. So males would view their father, from whom he had received blood, and his brothers and sisters, from whom he shared blood, and his offspring, both genders, of whom he gave blood as part of the family. Females, likewise, viewed fathers and siblings as blood kin. But since a mother could not pass on membership of a family to the next generation, her children technically belonged to the patriline of her husband. So here's the kicker. Because a husband and a wife had different fathers, and therefore belonged to different patrilines, or family lines, married, married people did not primarily express their allegiance to a spouse, but to members of their family of origin. The emotional bonding and affection that many husbands and wives experience in America was typically present in the relationship of siblings in the New Testament. The sibling affection was the primary affection. 
Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that marriages were relationally empty or even unsatisfying, but merely the fact that in the world of the New Testament, blood runs deeper than romantic love. Now, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, to the very beginning of the book, after Adam and Eve fall in the garden, what is the story that the author of Genesis communicates as the first level of sin? It is not between a married couple. It is a betrayal of brothers. Think about it. The first question we get outside the garden is when God asks Cain, after he has killed his brother Abel, where is he? And Cain responds with a question, am I my brother's keeper? And in fact, in a collective society, Cain, you are. Societies have changed, cultures have changed, family dynamics have changed, but the ways in which we interact with sin have not changed. Not unlike those recorded throughout the scriptures, we long to ourselves of any responsibility of another person. So if you have a Bible, you can look actually back at Matthew 12, when Jesus is asked the question, who are my brothers and who are my sisters and who are my mothers? Here is his response. Here are my brothers. Here are my sisters, the ones who followed me, and they have bowed their will to God's. They are now mine I am now theirs. And just imagine someone from this time period. It had to have been so repulsive and disorienting for you to hear a Jewish Nazarene rabbi say, I am restructuring the entire family unit. Simon the Zealot the one who carried a dagger in his cloak, seeking to overthrow the entire Roman regime. Matthew, the tax collector, corrupt politician, the one who was cheating the system and exploiting his neighbors, particularly the poor, and working for the powers that controlled the empire. Both of you are now brothers. It is difficult for us to try and relate back to the ancient Mediterranean world, but here is an example for how close brothers and sisters were and how offensive and countercultural Jesus's command was. There's a little line in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter two, that says, but when Joseph heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Now, who is Archelaus? Well, he's Herod's son, according to many ancient texts, and he was a pretty terrible ruler, in fact, worse than Herod, so Joseph's fear of him was not alone, or Joseph was not alone in his fear. But it became such an ordeal for how terrible of a ruler he was that 50 Palestine Jews decided to sail across the Mediterranean Sea to voice their complaint against Emperor Augustus. They got a hearing, and among many of those complaining about Archelaus were some of Archelaus's blood relatives. So we have ourselves a conundrum. Do they stay loyal to their blood kin, or do they cast their lot against this terrible ruler? Now, according to historian Joseph's, Joseph Hellerman, 
Archelaus' kin considered it reprehensible to cast their vote against him, for they believed that they would be disgraced in the eyes of Caesar if they were willing to act this way toward their family. So what happened? Well, Archelaus catches wind that there are people petitioning the emperor against him. So he runs to Rome to advocate for himself. And while he's away from Palestine, there is a group of Jews who start a massive insurrection. And included in the insurrection are Archelaus' family members. So the Romans actually quell the insurrection. They kill the, they kill the riot. And Augustus laughingly pardons every single one of the Jews who participated in the insurrection, except for the relatives of Archelaus. Not only did he not pardon them, he killed them, all of them, because they had, quote, shown contempt for justice in fighting against their own kin. Now, the point of telling that story is to show you the mindset of how disgraceful it would have been for a person to take sides against a member of his own blood family, no matter how reprehensible that said person was. The emperor indulged the foolishness of rebels causing a riot, but he could not tolerate the betrayal of family and therefore called for capital punishment. So when Jesus says, these are my brothers and these are my sisters, there is some zip on his fastball. And as we think about the concept of the family of God, I really just have two points. And the first is this. The family of God is imperative. The family of God is imperative. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20 says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he was passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in their boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Our familiarity with this passage makes it so easy to skim over what is so radically ridiculous. James and John are fishermen carrying on the line of Zebedee. And a strange Jewish rabbi comes along the shore and says, follow me and I'll teach you how to catch people. Can you imagine what Zebedee, the father, is thinking? His sons, who are going to carry on the family lineage, who are going to ensure that the honor of their father remains intact for the coming generation, get up out of the boat and follow this stranger. This is what would be considered a family war crime an abandonment of one's lineage, if you will. And Mark places this right around the text that says, repent and believe the good news of the gospel. He is tying repentance to allegiance. 
a transfer of family lines. To follow Jesus is to accept the reality of a new family. There is no other word, no other metaphor, no other term of affection that is more repeated in the New Testament than that of Adelphoi, that of brothers and sisters. And what is so interesting about the boom of the early church and the rise of Christianity is that it was not solely because the message was so liberating that people flocked to it. It was liberating. It still is liberating. But the reason people flocked to the way of the church, most historians say, was not merely because the message was more compelling, but because the way of life was more whole. Because it wasn't actually a new religious system. It was a new family. A community of people unlike each other in most ways, and yet sharing with one another and living together and eating together and praying together and grieving together. This wasn't a new friend group. It was a new last name with a new purpose and a new ethic. I mean, what is the sign that Jesus tells us? The one sign that Jesus tells us will mark us as His. Our love, our affection, our care for one another our ability and desire to forego personal convenience so that another could flourish. Isn't that the opposite of the American way? The way of Jesus says, I will sacrifice personal convenience for the flourishing of my family. The American way says, I will sacrifice others at the altar of personal convenience. Now think about all of the one another's in scriptures, what they are and what they are not. We are great at practicing what they are not. Here are some notorious one another's that we practice that are not in the scriptures. Obliterate one another. Tear one another down. Speak ill of one another when they are not around. Humble one another. Chastise one another. Ignore one another. Pressure one another. Exclude one another. Cancel one another. This is the currency of our worldly climate. It is the air that we breathe. But what about the actual one another's, like the bear one another's burdens, and the rejoice with one another, and the love one another, and the greet one another with affection and joy, and be hospitable and share with one another. Do not devour one another. Be gentle and live at peace with one another. Be of the same Don't grumble with one another. Confess to one another and forgive one another. The way in which we treat one another says a lot about who we think God is deep down. Do we think God is more like the first set of one another's or the second? And the new commandment Jesus says in John 13 is, your love for one another will mark you. By this all people will know. Is this true of us? And do we want it to be true of us? To be honest, it's just easier to ignore it. And in a society of individualists, where a culture of individualism has permeated the church like never before, we believe it's possible to follow Jesus and leave out the one another's. We believe it's possible to follow Jesus and forget the church. 
You cannot. You cannot commit to follow Jesus and leave behind his family. You cannot commit to follow Jesus and to abandon your siblings. You don't have a choice. Jesus does not give us that option, and thank goodness there is nothing more we need than the Spirit of God to speak through the children of God to us, to me. And here's the deal. Just like in the biological family, there are tense moments. There are angry conversations. There is the strange cousin at the Thanksgiving meal. And there is depth of knowledge of one another. There is joy and laughter and confrontation and grief and insight. There is seasons of mundanity and there are seasons of excitement. In a nutshell, there is life lived together. In the letter to the church at Thessalonica, Paul writes, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to not only share the gospel of God with you, but our very lives because you had become so dear to us. There is a genuine enjoyment of one another, not a sense of begrudgingness, as in I have to write to these people because they need to get their lives straight, but rather I miss these people. I like these people. It's a hope grounded in Jesus that results in a life of gratitude where meals are shared around tables in living rooms where another's kids are enjoyed by the family of God. It's one of listening and asking, of sharing and receiving of love and being loved. And if that's not compelling enough, just start where we should always start, God himself. God is community. God, in and of himself, is family. God is relationship. Father, Son, and Spirit have always been. They have never ceased, which means they have never ceased relationship. One was never created. And because they have always been in relationship, and they are one God and three persons, perfect in every way, they are a community, a family of triune love. Think of the Old Testament and think of how God is described. described, He describes Israel as my firstborn son. He describes his affection for Israel as a father carries his son, as a man disciplines his son, as a father has compassion on his children. He says, uh, and somewhere else, how gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. Two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus addresses God as our Father. And if you remember Jesus' prayer in the garden, he prays this, Father, you have loved me before the creation of the world. We believe through the testimony of Jesus and the inspiration of the Scriptures that Jesus was never created, meaning he was before all things, like it says in Colossians, and he laid the foundations of the earth, like it says in Hebrews. So because we believe that, we believe that God... The Father has always loved God the Son. He has never not loved Him. What was God doing before He created the world? It was the Father loving the Son. Because love is who God is. And it's not just the Father and the Son. Richard of St. Victor was an 1100 medieval Scottish philosopher, and his insight is astounding. If God were just one person, he could not be intrinsically loving. Since for all eternity, he would have had nobody to love. If there were two persons, God might be loving, but in an excluding, ungenerous way. 
After all, when two persons love each other, they can be so infatuated with each other that they simply ignore everyone else. And a God like that would be very far from good news. But when the love between two persons is happy, healthy, and secure, they rejoice to share it. Just so it is with God. Being perfectly loving from all eternity, the Father and the Son have delighted to share their love and joy with and through the Spirit. God is a sharing God. God who loves to include. Indeed, that is why God will go on to create. His love is not for keeping, but for spreading. God is family, and so we model Him. The new identity is family, and the new mandate is love. And love comes in many forms, right? The communication of truth, the extension of grace, the welcoming in of estranged siblings, prayer meetings around the hurting in the family, suffering with the pain points of our family members, realizing the trauma of our family members and stepping into it, not to fix them, but to just listen and show up over and over and over again. We make peace where there is conflict with the family. Notice it's making peace, not keeping peace. Using self-control, we practice gentleness. We're not easily enraged, but we use patience with one another, especially when the other is extremely frustrating. And honestly, the one thing that we probably have lost more so in the last two years in the church and in the culture at large is the idea that we give the benefit of the doubt. Uh, that is what family members do. Instead of thinking the worst and jumping to the worst conclusion, we actually think, of, you know what, maybe I should extend just a little more grace. Isn't that what God has done for us? We spend our money and our time on the needs of our family members. Our love and our way of life must be in relationship. Love does not exist with just yourself. Love only exists in the context of relationship. The family of God is imperative. There is no plan B. The second point is the family of God is imperative. We don't pick the family of God as if this is some kickball game where we get to take our favorites and leave behind the weaklings. In fact, I would argue the family of God does the opposite. It takes those who you would never pick to be on your team and puts them around your table on a weekly basis. And something we must reckon with this side of the kingdom is that the family of God will not always be like God. It will not satisfy the deepest longings of our perfect community. It will not meet your every emotional need. It will not fulfill a social utopia of relationships and friendships. Why? Why, you ask? Why will it not fill a social utopia of relationship and community? Well, because utopia only lives in one place. Right here. Between your ears. See, right here is where good community lives. Like where everyone is equally mature and equally sound in doctrine, where everyone's equally healthy, everyone's self-aware, no kids are suffering, everyone is super well-behaved, everyone listens the same amount of time, there's never anyone who dominates the conversation more than is necessary, everyone is always asking thoughtful questions, and everyone knows each other equally and loves each other equally. This community is safe, it's regular, people show up every single time and they're never late. 
That is a good community. And that's a utopian community that will not be achieved this side of heaven. Bonhoeffer has this great line, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. And here's the thing. No one that I know has found the perfect church, but everyone I know is looking for it. No one I know has found the perfect church, but everyone I know is looking for it. As a bit of a disclaimer, it is popular. In fact, right now there is a whole world of it uh, to talk about how much the church has hurt you how much damage the church has done to you. How, as Gandhi said, I like your Christ, but not your Christianity. Or in modern terms, I like your Jesus and hate your church. Church shaming is actually somewhat of a virtue in America, especially for the majority of us in the room who are around my age or younger. Uh, It feels somewhat justified to obliterate the once beloved institution that you were a part of. Um, We are in the age of deconstruction, that is the millennial age, and actually it's more the age of destruction. Uh, deconstruction implies reconstruction. Uh, destruction implies demolition for demolition's sake. And I am not up here to defend everything the church has ever done. The church is responsible for some of the most grotesque and unspeakable things the world knows. There are many things the church has failed at. They have started wars. They have funded murders. They have abused and covered up abuse. They have been complacent with evil and complicit in it, namely through silence and willful ignorance. And that is all at a macro level. But I know that for many of you, the relationships that have caused you the most hurt have come from inside the church. The church is made up of broken people who act selfishly, who gossip, who even physically abuse, who use the church as a safe place and a cover for such destructive behavior. And we mourn that. It is reprehensible. And we call it out. We, collectively, as the church, should own that. Uh, It is, again, our individualistic nature sort of wants to absolve. I didn't do any of that. Well, you're part of the family. And as the family... Equal celebration in the victory, equal blame in the defeat. And yet everyone I know has been harmed by the church to different degrees, but but that is because everyone I know has been harmed by a follower of Jesus. I'm guessing even as I am talking, there is a situation or a person that comes to mind that has harmed you or has done something vile or evil to you, or has ignored your pain, or has shut you down, or has drugged your name through the mud, or just has flat ignored you. I don't doubt that. I don't defend it. I have been hurt by people in the church, and I too have people in the church. But what is interesting is that we experience pain in the church, uh, but that's, that's inevitable. In fact, that's actually not interesting. It's not interesting that we experience pain in the church. It's that we have found a new remedy for it. There was a reference handbook titled Mental Health in America that was published in 1976, and this is what it said. Psychoanalysis and psychiatry is the only form of psychic healing that attempts to cure people by detaching them from society and relationships. All other forms Shamanism, faith healing, prayer, 
bring the community into the healing process. Indeed, they use the interdependence of patients and others as the central mechanism in the healing process. So in contrast to traditional forms of healing, modern psychiatry isolates the troubled person from his or her network of real-life relationships and tries to deal with emotional dysfunction in the artificial setting of patient-client relationship. Think about that. We are one of the only societies and cultures that detach hurting people from the community in order to help them better function in the community. Now, caveat. There is nothing wrong with therapy. I see a counselor. Uh, Christian psychologists have done some wonderful things and they should be applauded for their insights and helping people grow and mature. And counseling, therapy, medication are all good gifts from God, I believe. Uh, and in fact, we should not ignore them when wisdom says otherwise. But many people utilize psychotherapy as just another resource to enable them to continue along their own quest for personal autonomy. An autonomy that seeks to escape rather than courageously engage painful relationships. The trick is the way out is actually not out. The way out is through. The way out is actually back in. So what is the task ahead? We are individualists at heart, corrupted by the disease of individualitis, convincing people that their ultimate hope for healing lies in engaging with and not running from significant others is the task ahead of us. The family of God is imperfect. It is full of broken people. And if you find a community that is perfect, uh, emotionally stable, spiritually mature, relationally inviting, and you step into it, it immediately becomes broken and emotionally disabled and socially awkward and other things uh, because there is no such community for such a thing. Uh, and I don't think any of you out there are looking for a perfect church or a perfect community, and I am thrilled because of that. But in case anyone out there is thinking about, thinking about it, please do not be in search for the utopian family of Jesus followers. But... Please know that following Jesus implicitly means being a part of the family of God. A localized, intentional, accountable web of relationships where there is older and younger and male and female and the rich and the poor and those of various people groups. There is no such thing as solo Christianity. Uh, say, uh, one of the probably the greatest uh, church father is an African named St. Augustine, St. Augustine, and he says, He who does not have the church as his mother does not have God as his father. The call is not to say, I go to this church, the call is to be an integral part of the church. The call is to say, I belong to these people and they belong to me. I am accountable to them and they are accountable to me. Jesus is described as the head of the church, the head of the body. And in Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, that is the metaphor. We are the body. You cannot distance yourself from the body. 
And the news flash that came to me a few years ago, when I struggled with, with church, particularly with some of the, the massive institutionalized aspects of church, is if we don't like the church, we're going to hate the kingdom. She is broken. Sometimes she has even passed down things to us that we have later in life seen how destructive and unhealthy those things are. But the church is still our mother. To not belong to her, to not belong to a family, to not invest your time and energy and effort into her is to say, I don't need it. But <laughs> you're not saying, I don't need it, and as in the universal Catholic church sense. You're saying, I don't need them. The faces that you know, and the names that you know, and the people that you know. What you are saying is, they have nothing to offer me, and I have nothing to offer them. God cannot use, me, cannot, God cannot use them to help me, and God will not use me to help them. God will not grow me up by being a part of a church. That is what you are saying. And that road is the road of idolatry. Where we have made the church in our image and in our likeness. And in so doing, we construct and worship a God who we have recrafted into our image and our likeness. And that is a God, but it is not a beautiful one. And it is not the one who is the cornerstone of the But thanks be to God, the church is not made in our likeness. The church is made in His. The church is not meant to reflect me. It's meant to reflect Him. It actually, that's what makes the church so beautiful and powerful. And though imperfect, we strive to be a people who want to show others who we believe God is like deep down in His heart. Our doctrinal statements may be accurate, but it's our culture that will either prove them true and beautiful or false and coach speak. A call to Jesus is a call to lay down our preferences and to lay down our opinions and to lay down some of the things that we just would probably rather not deal with. And it's a call to take up our cross. And there is nowhere the cross gets taken up more often than in the family of God. For many of us, the place of some of our greatest pain is from the church. But I believe that's also the place where there can be our greatest that's what God tends to do with our wounds. He is known, as Henry Nouwen calls him, the wounded healer. And because of the blood of Jesus, you can be adopted into the family by the grace of God when you answer the call to follow Jesus. And when you do answer the call, if you answer the call, you get the beautiful privilege and wonder of being a part of this multi-generational, multicultural, multilinguistic, socioeconomically diverse family of God. And it is that, an imperfect family, yet it was the original design. The Father who loves the Son, the Son who sends His Spirit and extends love to those who would receive it, and us messed up, incomplete, broken people, and yet one in the Son by the Spirit for the Father. We have been given the family inheritance. We have been given the family God as our Father, Jesus as our brother, and each other as siblings in the Spirit. Intimate, relational, real siblings of the giant family of God.
Let's pray. Father, you have given us one another. And it is a joy. And much of the time we look at it as a drag. But it is a joy to know and be known by one another and to love and be loved by one another and to forgive and be forgiven by one another. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would do a work in us through your spirit towards our outlook and therefore our actions towards our brothers and sisters. We open ourselves up to you and we pray that you would do a work in us. Now, over the course of the next year, create in us an affection for each other. One that is actually magnetic and draws people who are outside the faith but inside of our reach. And they say, what kind of love is that? What kind of forgiveness is offered in that community? God, would you do that in us? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.